0: Anybody like to um, ask for prayers tonight? Anybody? Would you
1: remember
0: Sorry, Doug. No. George and Ivy. Yeah. Yep, yep. His wife. No. Oh, <laughs> yes.
2: Sorry, okay. We, we have two for our daughters, Lauren and Kimberly. They're both expecting. Oh, congratulations. We're <laughs> about to have two more grandchildren.
0: That's huge. That's gonna age you some.
2: Uh, As if that was even possible.
0: (laughs) Say their name again, Kimberly and Lauren. Okay. Let's let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you this day, the gift of yourself to us in the Mass and for your presence always for the way in which you are present to us. Um, I ask a special grace on all of us in our work here. Um, I've never wanted this to be just literature. Um, I really believe there's something prophetic here being... Offered, that the Spirit is working through these people, helping us to see things, and in this case, some very, very dark things. Um, we're grateful for the artists who had the courage to look at these things, the patience and the belief to present them so that we could learn to see ourselves more clearly. Help us not to look at these just as other people, something quaint or interesting about the South or America, um, but of ourselves. Um, Holy Spirit you work um, you're always soliciting quietly Um, there's such a kindness in the way you do things and often in in direction Um, for the kind way in which you reveal us to ourselves in these works thank you Um, give us the courage to not be afraid to see things we don't like to see on the trust that, seeing them, we're in a bit better position to change ourselves, to make ourselves better, to become whole and new. Um, ask a, a special blessing on a number of families for Lauren and Kimberly, um, and their pregnancies, their husbands, um, and all those who love them, um, prospective um, grandparents. Um, Let there be a great joy in the new life coming into the world. And let everybody um, watch over the children they bring over into this world and help them to move with you in everything they do. (coughs) Um, Keep the mothers safe. Protect them. Let no harm come to them. Um, Let their husbands identify completely with everything that's going on. Um, just so you know, if I can step out of the prayer for a second, I talked with Christopher um, a couple of weeks ago in, in Ave Maria, and um, Christopher <coughs> was asking for, for our prayers. He said, uh, "Christopher never says this about a student. I've never, I've never heard him use these words to describe a student." He said he had a student that was hands down the best student he's ever had. That's a that's a remarkable piece of praise, hands down. Um, his brother did something that was on the verge of suicide. It's a Catholic family. He was on drugs. The father came to Christopher to talk with him because Christopher had some real struggles when he was younger. And um, shortly afterwards, I guess there was an episode where the kid took his brother, the, the one that was such an exceptional student, left the week before to go off on missionary work. Absolutely committed to the church. His brother had been on drugs apparently he took some kind of drug that had a devastating effect on him. And something happened at home, the police were called in, there was a rush in violence, and I guess the boy ran out into a canal and almost drowned. And they took him to the hospital and he died. His name is Luke. So I'm asking for your prayers for Luke. For Tom and Susan, Luke's mother, for Peter, his brother, and. His other siblings. Um, let this be a grace somehow for all of them. Um, for whatever way it draws them more deeply into a cross and the suffering there, let it strengthen them in their hope and their faith. Um, let them be stronger for this. Do not let them despair. Receive Luke into your kingdom. Forgive him his sins. um, Welcome him into the way to you um, in purgatory. um, And let our prayers speed him along the way. I ask for prayers also a grace for George and the chemotherapy, the additional therapy that's going to be done with him and on Irene for her back surgery that's coming up. Um, Be with all these people. Let them know your presence. We ask all these prayers. Christ, in your name, our Lord. Amen. Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay. can you pull out Burt Norton? Let's do the fourth section tonight, the short section. Those of you who weren't here last week, Fred, Francis, I think, it, um, it would probably be good to listen to the tapes because first of all, the classes are never alike, and um, we did some things with Burt Norton twice, but also the other works, but it would probably help to go back because we can't take a lot of time, but if you don't go back, you'll miss how what Eliot's doing with the whole of it. And it's not an easy poem to read at all. Um, let me just recall a couple of things briefly, and then read the short fourth section. It, it's probably the shortest section in the whole of the quartets, um, but each one of them has a very short section. Remember, Bert Norton. Um, it is titled After an English Manor you know, named Norton in Gloucestershire, England. It was burnt down in the 17th, 18th, 18th, 18th century, I think 740, I can't remember the date. It was burnt down. Eliot um, and a woman um, that was a good friend of his visited it um, when, uh, when he was, before he wrote this poem. But it's one of the things to keep in mind when we read it, because it's no longer there. It's burnt Norton. And we saw in the opening that Eliot's going to take us back to the garden. The, the, what does he call Our first world. And to the first parents. And I've spoken about this a number of times that so many of the great poets across history realized in some intuitive way, and, and probably because of the Christian tradition, but I think there are intimations of it already in pagan literature that um... the the garden is real in our consciousness Jung would have called it one of the images of our collective consciousness. It's the locus for so many of the images that that, um, have a power over our mind the garden, the peacefulness, the harmony between man and the rest of nature between man and God but once we lost the garden, once the fall took place, we we're estranged from it. But so much of our life is an attempt to get back to it, going to suburbia, which in some ways is one of the sort of, I mean, in some ways it's sort of laughable. We're, we're trying to get back to a garden estate, and everybody knows that after you create this new suburbia, 10 years later, it's in collapse. Drugs are in, adultery is rampant, you know. It, it's like the city, and then people are moving off again to go to another place. if we can ever escape the fall, we can't. He takes us back into the garden and there are these images um, on on the first page. He talks about what might have been, um, what could have happened, never does, and he speaks about time in terms of its um, eternal presence and he acknowledges that if if we only have time, if there's only a before in the present moment and an after, then all time is unredeemable. There is no source of redemption, no matter how good we are, how hard we strive to be good, we can never redeem the time. For a a redemption to take place required that something outside of time entered time um, to answer the failures of time, the the fallen world, and that was Christ. So he says, if all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable, what might have been is an abstraction, Remaining a pet- perpetual possibility only in a world of speculation, we can continue to grieve about what might have been if I'd only done this, if we had only done that, and all we do is make clear that we're living in a before and an after, but we are not in the present moment, trying to find our place with Christ in what we do here. So, uh, he pr- he opens the poem with those notes of. Um, those meditative notes, those speculative notes, and then he says, footfalls echo in the memory down the passage which we did not take towards the door we never opened into the rose garden my words echo thus in your mind, but to what purpose disturbing the dust on a bowl of rose leaves I do not know. Notice the way he constantly juxtaposes these abstractions um, with concrete images, always to relate those two things. And notice the, the, the two important images there. Echoes, he repeats. Footfalls echo in the memory. My words echo thus in your mind. Remember, an echo is an image of something. It's not the thing itself. So it makes clear that that thing is there when it's not there. It's one of the great paradoxes, right? You holler out your name in a canyon, um, and it comes back as an echo. The, that echo is not what you did, it echoes. Um, the, the rose leaves, on a, in a, or the dust on a, on a bowl of rose leaf. it's an image of potpourri. And we all know that in potpourri, women, grandmothers, I mean Doc still, we have potpourri in our house and I know lots of women do, lots of grandmothers, I, I don't know that people do it as much today, but potpourri consists of dead flowers. They're no longer alive, but, but the scent that they give off is real now. So increasingly he's, he's giving us this imagery of things that once were and no are, longer are, and yet still somehow present. So it's, a, it's, a, it's the way of a mystic to show things pass away, they're mortal, they will die, and yet something else comes. So Norton, the house, the echoes, the potpourri, the roses. We go into the garden and remember it's the deception of the the thrush. The thrush is one of the most, produces one of the most beautiful songs of all birds in nature. So we're invited into the music of this garden and there suddenly out of the sunlight is this pool and the laughter of children and they were behind us reflected in the pool, then a cloud passed and the pool was empty. So we're left with this concrete, we're back in the suburbia world. But for a moment there was a glimpse of something. And remember his description of the couple. There they were as our guests, accepted and accepting, so we moved and they in a formal pattern. Remember there are invisible... into our first world, there they were, dignified, invisible, moving without pressure over the dead leaves in the autumn heat. And one last thing, remember his description of the flowers, the very bottom of the first page to the second, and the the unseen eye beams crossed, that is there is a look going to get tired or not already tired of hearing this, one of the effects of the fall is this dichotomy between subject and object. We tend to objectify. We make another an object. It's rare for us to enter into another person and be with that person as a subject wholly in that person's right. I know we all know this. Even in marriages, you can love somebody and there's still some way in which that other person is an object. The image it, it is an ancient, it goes back to medieval times. John Donne uses this image in some of his poetry, the eye beams crossing. It's a way of expressing this sense that, of, of a beholding that unifies the, t- the couple, that they are one with each other. That something of that dichotomy is overcome for a moment. So he says, The unseen eye beams cross, for the roses have the look of flowers that are looked at. That's an identical. Condition. Because roses are not just objects for us to see, they're responsive. It's almost as if they received us so that they themselves had reason or purposefulness, a, a, a receptiveness of our look. So that once again, there's this exchange. We're returning to an Edenic condition. We're getting past the subject object thing. We go back to the garden, and then suddenly the bird after the, the cloud comes, um, says, go, said the bird, for the leaves were full of children, hidden excitedly, containing laughter. Go, 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 said the bird. Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Time past and time future, what might have been and what has been, point to one end, which is always present. We can't bear very much reality. It's one of the most famous lines in Eliot. We're not ready Humankind cannot bear very much reality, and I don't think he's just talking about sound. You know, sometimes a car will drive up and the music is blaring, and you want to roll down the window and tell the guy to turn his sound. You know, too loud sound, too hot and cold, is intolerable for us. There's a nature that we have, so that excesses hurt. I think he's talking about spiritual reality. That we cannot bear too much joy. It would, it, imagine a sexual climax going on and on and on and on. I mean it would drive a person nuts. Too much joy, too much pain. That we have to learn to bear joy and sin. And it takes, it takes doing for both of those. Um, remember when Paul saw Christ on the, I think it was the road to Emaeus, he was blinded, blinded. It's hard to believe, and remember, actually this is really good, remember in Dante, Remember in Dante, Dante had to t- to take each one of the planets slowly. I mean, he had to learn to adjust his sight as he moved closer and closer to the Imperium, and at one point, as he got closer, he went blind, and at one point, he caught a glimpse of sight or a, 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 a caught sight of Christ, and was blinded. I mean, how how can the Bible says um, how did, how, we we won't we won't be with him? How does that, that phrase go? T- to or like him. How does that phrase go, Doug? We won't. Paul has that phrase where it won't be. We won't be with him till we're like We won't see him as he is. We won't see him as he is until we're like him. We have to, we have to become more Christ-like to see him as he is. In the second section, he 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 shows these patterns between the constellations and the activities here, between the blood in the body and the movement in the stars, and then introduces for the first time in the poem this idea of the still point. At the still point of the turning world, And notice it's, there's no predication, it's just a point. Neither flesh nor fleshness, neither from nor towards. Um, except for the still point, the still point there would be no dance and there is only the dance. I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long for that's to place it in time. Can we locate our relationship to Christ in any point in our lives? Is he here? Is he there? Was he? Will he be? We know he's always there, but can we really identify, see clearly those points of contact? I can only say, there we have been, but I cannot say, where was it? In what sense? Um, In three, he identifies this world as a place of disaffection. This is the darkest section of the whole quartet, and certainly of the opening one, Burt Norton. Um, Men and bits of paper, world, this is on page four, world by the cold wind. Men and bits of paper are blown about because what drives human beings, all of us, are our appetites. that blows before and after time, wind in and out of unwholesome lungs, time before and time after. That is, we're not in the present, we're before living in the grief of our past or hoping for something yet still to come, but not living in the present. Erectation of of unhealthy souls into the faded air, the torpid. Erectation is belching, torpid is dull and sluggish, and he gives a list of, important English towns, Hampstead, Clerkenwell, Campton, he could have said Times Square, Hollywood, Dallas. Descend lower, descend lower, he takes us into a dark world um, and then ends that section with, but abstention from movement while the world moves in appetency on its meddled ways, we become so fixed on our appetite. It's like all of us have addictions, in some degree or (coughs) another. that we're so fixed with our appetites that it's really hard to break them. Remember, this is, by the way, this is the way Ahab described himself. Remember he, he used the image of railroad lines that he was this whole notion that he was predestined and he couldn't get off of them was so enraging <coughs> to him to challenge that notion. Um, so there are two ways, the, the way of negation, the way of affirmation, but in neither case can there be movement in the wrong way? Um, so, the way of negation is the way it's um, John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul. This is the one way, and the other is the same, not in movement, but abstention from movement, while the world moves in appetency on its metal ways of time past and time future. So, that's dark, but we're, we're told be careful of. Of desires, of appetites. Because something in us has to learn to be still. I hope it's clear by now. There's a difference between love and desire. God loves. I don't believe there's a desire in Him. The desire is for what we don't have. Yeah? There there was no lack of anything in God, God the Father, Christ the. But this appetency, the church talks about it in terms of um, attachments. We get so attached to things that it's hard to deny ourselves or to move away from them. But abstention from movement while the world moves in appetency on its meddled ways, of time past and time future, but not in the present. So we come to section four, It's where we are tonight. Time and the bell have buried the day, the black cloud carries the sun away, Will the sunflower turn to us? Will the clematis stray down, bend to us, tendril and spray, clutch and cling? Chill fingers of you be curled down on us? After the kingfisher's wing has answered light to light and is silent, the light is still at the still point of the turning world. It's a stunning section. Um, Time is going out. It's turning dark, you know, the sun's going down, time and the bell have buried the day. I don't know if that's a a bell clock. I suspect it's a sea bell because in one of the quartets it's going to be a major, the bell ringing, tolling at sea for the dead. Time and the bell have buried the day, the day is going out, the black cloud carries the sun away. We, you all know that the sunflower moves in relation to the sun, right, across the, as the sun moves across the, the sky, a sunflower will follow it, but the sun goes down, and so he's asking a question. Will the sunflower turn to, this is interesting because every one of the images now is in reference to us. Will the sunflower turn to us? Will the cumulatus stray down, bend to us, tendril and spray, clutch and cling? Chill fingers of you be curled down on us? (laughs) I don't know how to put this. If the still point is gone and there's no God and there's no sun, is there nothing else in the world but us? Is, is everything meant to be seen in terms of relationship to us? Um, or is nature indifferent? Um, it, it puts us in a slightly negative light, but it also questions whether nature isn't indifferent. I mean, where do we stand uh, when the sun goes out? Chill fingers of you I think the yew tree is, is one of the most common trees in graveyards. I'm not correct, particularly in England. Chill fingers of you be curled down on us after the Kingfisher's wing is answered light to light. You know the Kingfisher I think has those filmy wings and so when the sun is down it catches the light and answers back light to light. Hopkins used that in um, Kingfisher's Catch Fire in that poem. Remember we said everything has a Everything names itself, everything has a self. After the Kingfisher's wing has answered light to light and is silent, the light is still at the still point of the turning world. It's still, it's quiet, but it's still there. So five, we'll, we'll finish the, um, the, the Burt Norton next week. Five has everything to do with words. And to me it's one of the most stunning reflections on words that I know about. So read this this week. And remember, always read it aloud. Don't read it silently, even if you're by yourself. Read it aloud. You have to hear it, you have to hear it. Okay, okay. Um, We're going to finish um, Santa Therese tonight so I've got to say now because I know when we finish up tonight there there won't be time and there will be too much confusion. This has been a great grace for me to teach this work, to read it. I read it 25 years ago and haven't given it much thought since. I wasn't sure that I should have included this um, on a reading list. I cannot tell you how glad I am. it's a frightening book. I think I've said this to you, I've said this to you again and again, that if we don't learn to identify with every character, we're not reading very well. And there's very little to be said to recommend us to identify with either the mother (laughs) or Jason, but it seems to me, I mean, I, 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 I think I've said this to you guys, that I look at Jason and find qualities that I identify with him that are frightening to look at. They may not be as obvious as or as blatant, you know, but complaining and whining when he doesn't get his way and things don't go the way he wants and um, finding fault everywhere, um, I suspect those are things all of us know. I don't, maybe you guys are closer to sainthood, I don't know, but I, I look at this and I think I said this last week after I finished the Jason section, I wanted to go to confession right away. And the mother. Where do you start with her? God. Um, Anyway, it's a dark, dark book. Dark book. So we have lots of important questions to do with today. To put this, to pull it all together. Um, So let me do a, a, a very, a very brief review to, to get ready for the Dilsey section. The title is taken from Macbeth, and it comes from that passage. Macbeth speaks just after he's learned that Lady Macbeth is dead. And it's clear that she died from a spiritual disorder, that she was so caught up in killing King Duncan that she's come to the end of her life. Um, and Lady Macbeth was in a large way responsible for pushing Macbeth into killing the king. She called him a coward, said he was unmanly, he didn't have, you know, I mean, she appealed to his sense of honor and his manliness. Silly stuff, but, but it had an effect. He gets the news that she's dead, and I read that passage tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, that there's no meaning to any days. It's like an idiot um, on a sound speaking nothing. And the opening chapter is Benji. Immediately after he speaks those words, he gets the news that Dunsing and Wood is moving. And he was told by the witches when he made this Faust bargain with the witches that he would have nothing to be afraid of unless Dunsing and Wood moved, and he knows that woods don't move, so he felt he was invulnerable. Think about the way spiritual powers can entrap man, because it seems to me spiritual powers are are far more clever than we are, far more powerful. Remember, angels were intellectual figures, far more cunning, so they would be able to appeal to whatever was most vulnerable in any person, and they do that with Macbeth. And at that point, he sees that everything he thought he was accomplishing is falling apart. So the relevance of that passage couldn't be greater than here, because we're taken into this family at a moment when we're seeing this family is falling apart. Nothing is holding together. So in one sense, the story is about the disintegration of a southern family, of a a southern family whose roots are in the aristocracy. I've suggested that I don't think it's limited to that, I That I think we're meant to read it as an American family, and in some ways it's characteristic of something going on in America right now. And I'll try to make that, I think I made it clear, but I want to come back to it again. Um, what we see in the Compson family is what happens to a family without God. And we saw this with Melville. remember the the whole New England seaboard culture was hypocritical. It it was living under a moral, nobody was living up to its Christian ideals. So both in North and South, we've got these two great poets who are showing us what happens to a culture when it loses its Christian roots. Um, Everybody in the family talks about the family being under a curse. Benji's an idiot. Maury committed adultery. Um, Quentin committed suicide. Caddy has an illegitimate child, Herbert divorces her. The father goes to bring the child home and a year later he commits, he he drinks himself to death. It's a suicidal act. He despairs. His son, they sold a pasture to pay for his Harvard education, his son committed suicide. His daughter has an illegitimate child. So he opts out of the family, runs away. Quentin had already done the same thing. So, everywhere there's this despair that this family has come to. Um, um, There are three important governing perspectives in the play, or the story, the novel, that I think we have to keep in mind. One of them is that the conflict between North and South that led to the Civil War is not over, is not resolved, it has not been put to rest. We saw this, we've seen this very clearly in... I hope it's clear, in uh, Moby Dick and Go Down Moses. Two entirely different cultures. The North is individualistic, the, the South is com- commutarian. It's very communal in character. Agrarian, industrial, banking, agrarian. The, the contrasts are real. How real they are today is another thing. It seems to me they've moved closer to each other after, because of the defeat of the, the Civil War. But in this novel, the tensions between the two cultures is real. When Quentin goes to Harvard, he goes into a northern class. His closest friends are um, Gerard, um, Shreve, um, and Herbert, who's a Harvard student, comes home to marry Caddy, And you remember that he buys off the Compson family, there's that sickening scene with the mother who's terribly flattered when he starts to flirt with her about running away with her and that Caddy will have this car. Jason has all these expectations of getting a job in Herbert's bank and then when Herbert finds out that Caddy's, that the child's not his, he divorces her. Jason never lets go of that resentment. He loses the job and he will hold that against Caddy. We know his life. So you've got Harvard, this intellectual center and in some ways an image of everything that's industrial north and banking and Prince from Jefferson which is agrarian communal, it looks out for people um, although that's not happened clearly in his family. That's one of the perspectives. The other, one other is um, it's the the period of the decline. One of the first important events that takes place in the Benji episode, remember, is Damity's death. She She's the grandmother of the family, what would you call it, the matriarch. She dies and it's clear that she's a lady. So her death marks the beginning of that end. So you can mark the decline from Damity's death to Quentin's running away at the end. Caddy's already run away, she's become promiscuous. So once the, the lady Tradition is gone. What does a woman live for? I mean, we've got two two daughters in the family, both of whom are promiscuous. What? It, and I've I've gone over this before. Quentin's great struggle was to live up to the chivalric ideal. Both of those ideals, by the way, I hope it's clear, are Christian. They're Catholic. They're products of the Christian Middle Ages. The ideal of a gentleman and of a lady, the gracious the gracious woman in the garden and the heroic knight who would, who would sac- risk his life for the sake of helping another and usually a damsel that whole tradition comes under a serious critique because we learned that there's something very self-serving for both the man and the woman, the sense of honor, the man's egos caught up in it, the woman's vanity Quinn tries to live up to that and fails everywhere if you take those two things away if you take those traditional ways of identifying or looking at men and women away what do you have? What's left? Banking interests, self-interest, drinking, money, all the things that we see in the Thompson family going to hell. So my suggestion has been that I, I don't think this is just southern, it's about a southern family whose roots are aristocratic although it clearly is that. I think it's also an image of a crisis in modern America. If you, when, a, when a Christian culture loses its Christian values, what are men and women to do? Um, take away the ideal of a lady and take the ideal of a gentleman away, what's in its place? So it's a serious, serious question. I mean, how does a man and woman pursue whatever they're going to do in the world and still keep their roots in Christ? So Sound and the Fury in some ways to me is a cutting-edge story. It's very prophetic. It's almost like um, Jeremiah coming into the present and saying, here's what you're becoming, Israelites. Except it's not the Israelites, it's us. Um, and the final perspective was that, what I call that Old Testament Calvinistic perspective, that sense that the curse hangs over. every Everything, the, Everything defining the family that relates to any sense of a religious life is <coughs> dark and forbidding a curse God is punishing me the mother says that over oh, this is a punishment for me might you know she, she 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 can't do enough to talk about how much she's being punished and suffering and and how un- how lacking in charity her children are so um, there is this dark Calvinistic sense, there is no sense in the family, unless anybody can remember something, I'm, um, of a merciful, of a merciful, forgiving God. Charity forgiveness. I mean, there's nobody in the family who's, who doesn't sin, but there isn't anybody in the family who isn't condemned for them and cast out. I mean, Caddy is, the mother f- forbids that her name will ever be mentioned again. She locks the door every night on Quentin might be a half-prudent thing to do, I don't know if it were, but nobody brings, nobody brings a charity or a spirit of forgiveness to whatever way they try to fulfill justice. Those two things do not ever come together. Remember in Dante, that was, that was our great task, how to bring law and love together. So the, the, the religious sensibility the religious qualities that people bring to their relationships with each other is really dark and forbidding. That's what we were left with, and and then we looked at Jason, and um, we talked about the importance of the three different or the modes of each of the three sections, the, the consciousness. Remember, we're inside Benji's mind, inside Quentin's mind, and then last week inside Jason's. And I suggested last week that. Um, that each section be looked at as a plot on its own terms, each one is a story in itself, in each one nothing happens, really to speak of, nothing happens. But what we learn is that underneath the surface, inwardly, the world is falling apart and it's full of pain and suffering. Um, If we look at the um, Benji plot, my suggestion is that it's Benji um, always waiting for Caddy. Desire is turned to waiting. He, he waits for her. He, he can't distinguish um, events in time. He constantly goes out to the gate waiting for her. Whenever he hears the word Caddy hollered out by the golfers, he immediately thinks of her. So he's trapped in this painful frustration of desires that will never be fulfilled. Caddy left ten years earlier than the story when we begin so. So Benji's... we can describe the the Benji plot as desire waiting with no hope of um, being fulfilled. The Jason plot can be described in terms of desire frustrated, defeated. Every effort he makes to live up to that ideal gets twisted and perverted, mostly by himself. Every time he tries to do something noble, he fails. Um, He challenges Herbert, he challenges Gerard, who knocks him out. He challenges Dalton Aynes, who doesn't knock him out, but, but Quentin is so threatened by, by Dalton when he picks him up that he faints. Um, when he tries to help the girl and he can't do it, remember at the end he flips her a quarter and then runs away. He tries to get away. So over and over and over again he's living with the failure of not living up to the code that he inherited. His father was a war hero, his, or his, his grandfather was a war hero. His father, who, who think about this, his father grew up as a son to a war hero who was defeated. What did that do to the son? This is a really important question for me. It's going to go to the end. Is, what do we say of, of people who've been raised like this in a family? i would leave that until we get to the end. But. So Quentin's father was a son to a war hero, Jason Sr. drank himself to death, it's a way of escaping and Quentin commits suicide, he gives up his life too. Um, My suggestion about the um, Jason story, Junior uh, the last third section, is that its desire um, turned towards money, it's a to hoard money and desire to turn towards vengeance, hurting people. You remember that the the that recollection of that moment when they buried the father, and Caddy was hiding behind the tombs, and she came out towards the end and went to Jason and asked him if she could see her daughter, and she offered him fifty dollars, and then he had to, she had to up the price. He's just a mean mean person, and he said he'd do it, and then he takes the he, Steals Quentin as an infant, and they go in the in the carriage and just as they're approaching Caddy, he tells the driver to whip it and flies by, so she only catches a glimpse she's furious furious with him. He tries to hurt her, and at the end, when he comes back um, after that long day of you know all of his events, um, he has those two tickets from Earl, and he knows that Lester wants them, and he just teases him to wound him so. Justin wants to hurt people. The, the one driving motive in everything he does is vengeance against Caddy. He blames her for not getting the job, he will not let go of it. He, all, all day long he's preoccupied with her. Um, and, and stealing her money and banking it isn't going to answer that vengeance, you know that. He, he will not let go of it. So we, have, we enter into the consciousness of each of those three characters and each one has its own idiom its own way, its own mode, and its own mode of desire. And in none of them does there seem to be any hope of fulfillment. And that's what we're left before we get to the dizzy episode. So let me, let me see. Let me, I think, let me stop there and then um, um, take a look at some of the things that go on in the dizzy section. Before I do, though, any, any comments or thoughts or questions or... That's I. I hope that's dark, because it seems to me it has to be before we get to the Dilsey section, because the Dilsey section is the first section, in which we, the the greater part of the section isn't, from inside a person's consciousness. It's presented from a third person point of view, so we're outside and, and and we're not as troubled. You know, we don't get into the troubling of a character as much as we do with Benji or Quentin or. Uh, Jason. It's a very different way of looking, experiencing the world. And so the first three sections are very very dark um, and this in lots of ways is a very very different section And I think it's meant to be. I've read some criticisms on it and it's stunning to me. Some people some people think Sound of the Fury is a failure and they think the fourth section doesn't finish the book. I think it finishes the book in amazing ways myself but you all me different. I don't know. Where are Any questions or thoughts before we take a look at Dilsey?
3: For me it's very difficult to read because the only thing I see when I read this is selfishness and bad choices. Yeah. And every one of the characters is just unbelievably selfish whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. So everything is self-serving. Every interest is about me, 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 me. Even Benji. And he's, he's an idiot, he did not always know. What doing. Right. But but, but it, it's almost I mean it, it's it's the it's there is no you know, you bring it up to God and, and what happens when there is no God, etc. Cetera, etc., cetera, but there is nothing there. It's all about self. Yep. Yep.
0: Well, remember, I don't know if any of you are familiar with this, but the social contract theory that comes out of the sixteenth or seventeenth century forward, Hobbes, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, the the social contract theorists who make up the foundation of modern political thought, the basis of social contract theory is the nature of man is um, warlike. Man exists, at a a state of nature, man exists at war with each other. That's not even. We're not at peace with each other. What drives man is self-preservation. I don't want to go into that. I just, I do not want to take this up, but just to to give you a perspective on it. Remember, the basis of the modern political theory is social contract, largely, until you get to Marx, and, and then it's class warfare. But social contract theory premises is, man lives in a state of nature at war with each other is the fundamental driving motives of his life are self-interest, self-preservation and fear. So left in the state of nature, they're gonna kill themselves, we're gonna kill each other. So the only way to get out of that is by making a social contract. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. So the basis of the modern world is compromise. That isn't love. Compromise is not love. I mean, that isn't what goes on in Eden, that isn't what goes on in Christ. Christ never said compromise, he said love. It's a much harder thing. But anyway, the fundamental principles of the modern world, the, the, the way in which we look at each other, is that way. Self-interest, self worth Herbert's a perfect... he says to Quentin, you'll... as you get older you'll learn more about the ways. You know, that you'll have to... because it's always look out for yourself, make the best deal, buy people off, use money, prestige, So it's a Faulkner's treatment of the characters isn't an accident. I mean, it's a pretty accurate reflection of modern America. I think. One thing
1: that I was going
0: to ask. I was just thinking, what if we stopped right now? What an awful story! (laughs) We don't get on to Dilsey. God, what's there to do except take a gun and shoot yourself? God, or or buy lead weights and jump off a bridge. <laughs> Go ahead, awful. Faulkner. Sorry. I, you know, it, it's
1: hard for me not to read the Catholic lenses. But I know Faulkner was not Catholic. He was not a churchgoer. He himself had problems with alcohol. And bad treatment of women, right? I mean, I, I think he was I'm not, not a faithful husband. But, yeah. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. But I just wondered, when he chose the, the time frame, the, Good
0: Friday and then right. the Saturday
1: and then the Easter Sunday. Wait on that. I I, I just
0: wonder what. Wait on because that's going to be our last question. Wait okay. on. Let me get okay. let me go through the Dilsy thing because for me that's the brain question. Okay. By the way, I, I think I've mentioned this. I I don't want to I don't want to push this at all, but um, I I always look at the I don't know much about I mean I in in what I do know about Faulkner I don't know about mistreating women he. I think he looked at himself as a man of um, honor and men of honor in that time had affairs the way they do and, but you know I, that isn't to mitigate it or excuse it it's, but the thing about drinking for me um, I don't think Faulkner was a, he wasn't an alcoholic or a, but he drank and what I do know of him is that after almost every novel he, he drank himself into a stupor and one of my, at least one of my responses to that is, I don't know how he could have done otherwise because well truly, truly, no, I'm, I'm really I'm not, I mean I look at him and I think how could, the courage that it takes to do that again and again and again, how do you live for a writer to go into those depths and do that, to live there, because I don't believe anybody can go into those depths who hasn't imagined them or who who isn't drawing those things out of himself, how can you do it surreal? So I'm not surprised that he ended up in what do you these washout tanks or whatever wherever you go to dry out you know yeah. after you um, the the spiritual um, the overwhelming spiritual challenges the burdens that he had to face um, anyway let me do the Dilsey section really quickly I want to just I want to read a couple of things here and then put out what to me are these major questions and one of them is the one Joan touched on and I know Fred's got something for us here, I really want to hear it. In the dizzy section, remember it, it's presented um, um, third person detached. So we may go in and out of a character's consciousness but it isn't the dominant mode. We see people from the outside, so we're given a relief from all the burdens that we've been carrying from the first three, when we enter into their personal lives. It begins with Dilsey coming out. It's, it's the, there's a light, misty rain. She comes out. She's dressed up, I think, for church. Um, she's got her colored clothes on. She looks about. She has to cross the clearing to get to the house. She goes back and and um, changes her clothes, puts on her work clothes and then goes to cook breakfast. She gets luster-stirring, he's down in the basement doing something she can't figure out, we we will learn in a minute what it is, Um, and um, Carolyn, Mrs. Compson, calls to her, says she's been awake for an hour wondering if she's going to have to come down and cook breakfast, God. Um, (laughs) Asking again for sympathy because to do such a hard thing would be impossible for her. Um, She calls Lester again to go up and she learns that Benji is not awake yet Um, so she sends him up and and he helps Benji dress and brings him down. Carolyn comes down and um, Jason comes down and when they get down to eat breakfast, Jason's complaining, he's blaming Luster and Benji for a break in his window um, and Luster says he didn't do it. Dilsey threatens him for his devilment because she knows he's capable of doing that kind of thing. And I like that word. I mean, just, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I told this group, I, I told the other, I, I met somebody last week who, who, sp- who spoke about her son as having Satan in him and it just was not easy to hear. I'm sure this is sort of colloquial. I mean, it comes off her tongue without There's not as much importance for her as we would have today, Um, but you know that there was this dark sense that that this devilment would be in you if you did anything that wasn't good. He says he had nothing to do with the breaking of the window, and um, Carolyn says something about um, somebody possibly breaking into the house. She said it has all the sounds of something like that. And I think Jason's been slowly coming to that, but when, he, when she says that, it's like a light going off. He, he tears past her, runs upstairs, tries to get into the room. Um, remember, Carolyn locks the, the room, so he has to go downstairs and, and actually pushes her around. I, they end up back upstairs again in front of the room and he knocks her away and says, get away you old fool, that's his mother as he tries to wrest the key away from her because she doesn't want to give it to him, she doesn't let anybody have it. He gets the key, goes in and he discovers an empty room. He goes to his room and he goes to his box to check his money and finds that the money is gone so immediately he knows that Quentin broke into his room and stole the money. Now let me just for a second go back, remember it begins on Saturday, good, good Saturday, go back 10 years to Quentin's suicide, and then it goes back to Good Friday in the Jason section. At the end of the Jason section, remember, they were at the table when Caddy came from the swing and they quarreled, or sorry, in the Benji section, um, and then she, she ran off, that's all we know, but that's Saturday. or, or, sorry, Quentin. yeah, sorry, Quentin. So on Good Friday, when they quarreled at the table, remember she pushes Dilsey away and runs off um, after the fight with um, Jason. She runs off, that's the last we hear, but obviously something happened then because that's Saturday and we're at Sunday morning and Jason's waking up and realizing that the money is stolen. He immediately um, goes to the phone to call the sheriff and tells him what happened. And at that point, um, he leaves Dilsey takes um, Franny and Luster and Benji to church and um, it's a black, I'm assuming it's a black Baptist, it's in some ways evangelical. Um, there's a guest minister who, who um, gives a homily and it's interesting that he starts off trying to give the impression that he's a very educated, well-spoken minister and his homily falls flat, and then he slips into a black vernacular. And it's, it's almost as if the I don't know how to read this, but it's almost as if the, he makes an opening for the spirit. The spirit enters him, and he gives this sermon that holds everybody mesmerized <coughs> and reduces um, Dilsey to tears. They return home and eat, and um, we shift to the scene with the sheriff and Jason. The sheriff, Jason wants to get the sheriff alone, and the sheriff does not have it. He tells him to speak in front of these other people, I think because he knows what's going on. Jason already told him on the phone what happened. Jason repeats what happened, and he expects the sheriff to go looking for them, but the sheriff says there isn't enough evidence to, for him to do what Jason's asking. Um, he makes it clear that he... he believes that that money wasn't Jason's anyway, that Jason was probably stealing, so it it, it becomes clear here that other people know about this or sus- suspect it. Earl had some wind of it, the sheriff's got some wind of it. Um, when the sheriff refuses to help, Jason runs off, he goes to Mottstown where the show moved and he's supposing that the man with the red tie and Quinton will be there. When he gets there, he, there I think there are two boxcars and he goes into one of them and fights with this man and knocks him down and then because he can't get any help from him, the man runs after him with a hatchet, obviously kill him. It looks like the owner of this troop comes in and saves him, rescues him, and tells him that the couple um, they're not there, that he, he runs a respectable business and he would not have them there, so they either didn't come back or he fired them, but they're not there. So the whole enterprise has collapsed. Okay? Quentin got away with the money. He couldn't get the sheriff to do anything. He was incapable of doing anything. He's so exhausted by the moment he goes to he, he looks for a drugstore where he can buy camphor because he gets sickened by gas fumes, um, and he can't find anything. So he goes to the car asking two young black men if they would be willing to drive him home for a dollar. they won't do it. He ups it to two and they still won't do it, and he says, then let it go. Um, another man comes a minute later, says, are you the guy who wants, th-? he said, I'll do it for four. Jason says, no. And then the guy starts, I think, to walk away, and, and he says, okay, I'll do it. he get in the car, and goes. So the last act we see of Jason is his getting taken in a bargaining deal when he, he prides himself on always besting somebody else. So the last image we have of Jason is helpless, helpless, um, incapable of doing anything himself. And you know the last image we had of um, Carolyn Thompson was absolutely helpless. She, She can almost do nothing for herself. Having slaves has made that whole family incapable of doing anything on its own. So, this is the ultimate collapse. That, that image of Macbeth coming to that point where suddenly everything is falling apart is right in front of us. Um, Carolyn can't even reach for the Bible on her bed at the end when, um, when Dilsey returns and says, What can I get for you? Um, and she says something, Are, are you going to make me reach for the Bible? You know, that she's so, the whole family has been so spoiled by its aristocratic background, that it cannot do anything for itself. Um, we're home, um, Benji and Lester sit down to eat. Benji is still moaning some from the effects of the, the sermon and Lester says he will take him to the graveyard and Dilsey consents and he goes and you know what happens. Um, after he gets out of Dilsey's sight he gets a switch and switches him and as they enter town these other black people are looking at him. It's an interesting moment because Luster has this, out, let me show them what quality people do. So he's identifying with the aristocracy. You know, he's showing that he's got this, he's got the carriage, he can drive it, he's better than other people. It's one of the grim ironies of a black man wanting to step in to this way of living because they're poor. And and the way of living is money prestige, name, family, um, Luster going, let me show them what real quality is, and whips the horse and takes the wrong turn around the statue, and you remember what happened, Benji goes nuts, Jason has just arrived in town, he jumps in the, in the wagon and um, pushes Luster over and turns the cart so it goes around the, uh, the statue the right way, and let me read that line because it's just so important and Benji recovers his calm. Ben's voice roared and roared, Queenie moved again, her feet began to chop chop steadily again, clap clap, and at once Ben hushed. Luster looked quickly back over his shoulder then he drove on. The broken flower drooped over Ben's fist and his eyes were empty and blue and serene again as cornice and facade flowed smoothly. Once more from left to right, post and tree, window and doorway and signboard, each in its ordered place." <laughs> it's a wonderful cadence, I mean Faulkner is a poet, he, he has that capacity to measure his words and you know, it's a wonderful line, because in a sense the, the rhythm of the lines imitate the rhythm of the buggy and the calm that's returning to Benji. The irony is this, Things have restored to order. What's being, to, so from one perspective, we're all taking our breath and going, good. You know, Benji's not hollering. Luster doesn't have to be embarrassed. Jason doesn't have to be embarrassed at what people are gonna think anymore, which preoccupied uh, that whole family, even the blacks. Um, so it all seems calming. That's exactly Dante's description of hell. In hell, because you doorway and signboard, each in its ordered place, if things get, in Dante's hell, is anything ever the way it was, not the way it was two minutes earlier. It is a locked way of being. People are trapped in an ordered, what's that phrase I was laughing at, because I was, what was that, um, obsessive compulsive disorder? Obsessive, OCD. I can't remember, oh I remember it was one of the, one of the parishioners was, wasn't was seated where she usually is and I was saying to her you're not usually, and I can't get the class like this because you're, I mean I was laughing that's my form of o- OCD, OCD. they the, 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 the said if things are not exactly where we think they should be and, and the irony is that's as close a picture to Dante's Hell as we have so there's this grim irony at the end of this book um, that we get from what happens, you know, in this image of Luster trying to straighten and Jason trying to straighten things out, because every one of those characters is locked in his own world, and even Luster, in some ways, some ways, not. Okay, let me let me just quickly read through some of the passages. Then I've got these questions to ask. Go to the first page of the fourth section, the doozy section. Faulkner describes the rain taking on an almost oily quality as he describes it. It's strange. I don't, if any of you have any thoughts on that, I, I didn't, this is not the industrial north. You know, when Dilsey opened the door of the cabin and emerged, needle laterally into her flesh, precipitating not so much a moisture as a substance partaking of the quality of thin, not quite congealed oil. Um, It's a strange...
1: I took that to be a little bit of Dilsey's, um, the needles in her flesh, like Christ getting nailed on the cross. I don't know. I, uh, maybe I read too much into it, but you know that that's
0: kind of how I took that. I don't think. Do the reason I don't jump because he's describing the, the 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 rain and the chill moving out of the northeast, dissolving into moisture. Seem to dis- not dissolving into moisture. Seem to disintegrate into minute and venomous particles. There's something. Unholy is too strong, but there's something perverse in this atmosphere. Um, Anyway, she comes out dressed in this gown, colored and beautiful, and it's almost as if she takes a pleasure in it, is glad to be dressed. And we, we know how, I mean this is the opening on Dilsey, there's nothing colorful about any of the Compsons that I can remember. They, do, they don't enjoy color or dress. Nothing said. It's a drab, dreary home. Um, and she's the old, she and Lester are the only ones who love music. She will go into the kitchen and sing in a moment, you know that. And Lester is fascinated with that, <coughs> what that guy did at the show with his instrument to produce mu- music. And Faulkner describes Lester at the chair, remember when he sits down in the kitchen? fingering the chairs if you'd want to produce music. So it's the blacks who have music in their souls. And Dilsey and, her, and um, her daughter, who love color, because when her daughter's described, she's gone on this very colorful dress. So there's immediately a contrast between the black and white communities, just I in terms of dress and... you
2: think that might be a, the, initi- the initiation of that kind of light in the darkness? Thing that they'll see, sort of the, the, the hope at the, at the end of this darkness. And yeah, so she comes out. Yes, she's, yeah. she's all dressed. Yes, happy despite the fact. That yes, it's, it's
0: also Easter. It's Easter. Yeah. Not sure. a there there? Going he's Easter. not ready yet. yeah, sorry, Doug. Yeah, it's Easter when people
1: dress yeah. Up on Easter. say it mm-hmm. louder, Doug. It's Easter. Huh.
2: Yeah, but I mean, when you just talk about that oily, yes. sense to me oh. that's sort of she's the, the light in the darkness. Yeah, kind of thing.
0: Yeah, um, There's something exultant and it's quiet because the description of her is she's, she was heavy and it's almost as if she's thinned out and it's description, it's almost as if her bones emerge outside of her that she's become so gone, so worn out. She reminds me of the uh, serving woman in, in the Odyssey, for those of you who remember the mill woman who had her bones broken down. She spent her life serving these people and had been broken down, worn out by it, and that's the picture we have of her, and yet she dresses for church. Um, so she she goes off, Carolyn is complaining on page 270, Dilsey's singing. Um, the mother makes that comment about the perhaps a break-in took place and Jason runs upstairs and um, Hold on, I've got to find this. Um, Because this, to me, is one of the most embarrassing passage scenes in all that. Um, Page 277. Um, Lester is denying that he had anything to do with the broken window. And... um, Carolyn says, I don't want to go in your room, Mrs. Compson said. I respect anybody's private affairs. I wouldn't put my foot over the threshold, even if I had a key. Yes, Jason said, I know your keys won't fit. That's why I had the lock changed. What I want to know is how that window got broken. Lester says he didn't do it. They go on. He says he wants Quentin to come downstairs because the the practice of the Compson family is to sleep in on Sunday morning. So they don't they don't disturb their poor children. Um, bottom of 277. You leave her alone now, Jason, Dizzy said. She gets up for breakfast every week morning. And Miss can let her stay in bed every Sunday. You know that. I can't help a kitchen full of niggers to wait on her pleasure, much as I'd like to, Jason said. Go and tell her to come down to breakfast. Um, Carolyn says that she doesn't want to um, object to Jason because he's the leader of the house now, Um, Dillsy This in the middle of the page, maybe you think she broke that window, she would if she would happened to think of it, Jason said, you go and do what I told you, and I wouldn't blame her none if she did, Dillsy said going towards the stairs, would you nagging her all the blessed time you into house, hush Dillsy, Miss Compson said, it's neither your place nor mine to tell Jason what to do, go down. You got a prize set of servants, Jason said. He helped his mother and himself to food. Did you ever have one that was worth killing? I mean, the 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 depth of the disdain. I've, I've never heard anything as black as that in my life. Was one worth? Did you ever have one worth? They're not worth anything. Not even worth killing. Did you ever have one that was worth killing? You must have had some before I was big enough to remember. I have to humor them, Ms. Compson said. I have to depend on them completely. Go on down. I know you blame me, Miss Comston said, for letting them go off to church today. She's apologizing that the blacks are going off to church while, her, while she wants to let her daughter sleep in. Um, I know it's my fault, Ms. Compson said. I know you blame me. For what, Jason said. You never resurrected Christ, did you? That's, I mean, there's sheer blasphemy. I mean, it's just what's going on in this scene sort of exposes the relationship they have to God. They heard Dilsey mount the final stair, then her slow feet overhead. Quinton, she said, she called the first Jason, laid the knife down. Um, the next page is when Carolyn makes the suggestion and then Jason tears off upstairs, and they discover that Quinton's gone. And um, do, you, do you remember what Carolyn's first response was? So telling. Look for the note. Do you remember? Look for the note. What's going on in her head? She's followed in Quentin's footsteps that she took her life and she's convinced of it. I mean, see how immediately, I mean, that just, it says so much about the despair here. Um, now going over, I want to, can we go to the church um, scene? On page 294, it's really important, I think, what we've experienced here. We've learned earlier that, that the Reverend Shegog, <laughs> that sounds like something devilish out of the old Adam, is going to visit the church. Um, on page 294, he begins to address the congregation. Um, The preacher had not moved, his arm lay yet across the desk, and he still held that pose while the voice died and sonorous echoes between the walls. It was as different as day and dark from his former tone, with a sad timorous quality like an alto horn sinking into their hearts and speaking there again when it had ceased in fading and cumulate echoes. This is like Eliot's. It's still there, even after the words are gone. Remember, this is like the opening of the quartet brethren and sister, and it said again, the preacher removed his arm and he began to walk back and forth before the desk. Go down. I've got the recollection and the blood of the lamb. He tramped steadily back and forth beneath the twisted paper. Go down. With his body, he seemed to feed the voice that succubus-like had fleshed its teeth in him, and the congregation seemed to watch with its own eyes while the voice consumed him until he was nothing, and they were nothing, and there was not even a voice, but instead their hearts were speaking to one another in chanting measures beyond the need for words, so that when he came to rest against the reading desk, his monkey face lifted, and his whole attitude that of a serene, tortured crucifix that transcended its shabbiness and insignificance, and made it of no moment a long moaning expulsion of breath rose from them, and a woman single soprano. Yes, Jesus. Remember, we've talked about this in the opening Benji scene. Benji longed to say something, had no words. We've talked about this. Even if he had words, could he express the longing? What he felt for Caddy. That nobody, everybody in this book has a longing and nobody has the words for it. Nobody can speak it. Here in this church, when he shifts his tone and speaks in this black dialect, and the congregation seemed to watch with its own eyes while the voice consumed him until he was nothing, and they were nothing, and there was not even a voice, but instead their hearts were speaking to one another. It's like he's an instrument for com- for an act of communion that's taking place between them. So for the first time in the novel, we're seeing a group of people come together. First time, only time that I can remember. Caddy, it seems to me, gets close. Remember when she tries to unsnag Benji and says, Here, Benji. And then she says, What are you trying to say? Even then, they can't close it. Here it happens. As the scudding day passed overhead, the dingy windows glowed and faded. Um, Dilsey starts to cry. Brethren and Sistan, his voice rang again with the horns. He removed his arm and stood erect and raised his hands. I got the recollection in the blood of the Lamb. It did not mark just when his intonation, his pronunciation, became negroid. They just sat swaying a little in their seats as the voice took them into itself. <laughs> when the long cold, oh, I tells you, brethren, when the long cold, I see delight, light and I see the word. Poor sinner, they passed away in Egypt, the swinging chariots, the generation passed away. Was a rich man, where is he now? Oh, brethren, was a poor man, where is he now? Oh, sister? I tells you if you ain't got the milk and the dew of the old salvation when the long cold years rolls away. Yes, Jesus. I tells you, brethren, and I tells you, sister, to come a time poor sin is saying, let me lay down with the Lord, let me lay down my load. Then what Jesus going to say, oh, brethren, oh, sister, is you got the recollection in the blood of the Lamb? Because I ain't going to load down heaven. There's a dark. What's Christ going to say? Hmm. There's not going to be a place for sinners in heaven. He's not going to overload it. He fumbled in his coat and took out a handkerchief and mopped his face. A long, concerted sound rose from the congregation. Mm the woman's voice said, Yes, Jesus, Jesus. Brethren, look at them little children sat in there. Jesus was like that once. His mama suffered to glory and to pangs. Sometime maybe she held him at nightfall whilst the angels singing him to sleep. Maybe she took out... who's done that in the book? Dilsey. 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 And Caddy s- held Benji. Can't, to can't, yeah, they sang Benji to sleep. Mm-hmm. mama suffered the glory and the pang. Sometime maybe she held him at nightfall while the angel singing him to sleep. Maybe she look out um, the door and see the Roman police passing. He trampled back and forth, mopping his face. Listen Breton, I see the day a sat in the door with Jesus on her lap, the little Jesus, like them children down, the little Jesus, I hear the angels singing the peaceful songs and the glory. I see the closing eyes, see Mary jump up, see the soldier face. We're going to kill, we're going to kill, we're going to kill your little Jesus. I hear the weeping and the lamentation, the poor mama without the salvation and the word, The mother who weeps who will not see salvation. Um, mm, let me read this because there's too many questions here. So let me get through it so I can ask them all mm, mm, Jesus little Jesus and another voice rising Oh, sees oh Jesus oh, I sees and still another without words like bubbles rising in water reminds me of Quentin from the deep by the way I don't know if it's a scary image I sees it brethren I sees it sees the blast and blind in sight I sees Calvary go down. I hear the wailing of women and the evening lamentation. I hears the weeping and the crying and the turning face of God. They done killed Jesus. They done killed him. So, he's covered um, the flight from Egypt, the rich and the poor dying um, and the crucifixion and the suffering of Mary. Oh, blind sinner, brethren, I tells your sister and I says to you, When the Lord did turn his mind, you got to picture this too, because I'm sure everybody was just absolutely rapt. It's church, they work all week, they're slaving in the fields, it's a black church, the white people are sleeping at home. Well, we know that there are white people going to their congregations, Comstons aren't. Um, They're here with all this labor, and he's he's giving warnings for both the rich and the poor. I tells you, sister, and I says to you, when the Lord did turn his mighty face, say, ain't gonna overload heaven. I can see the widowed God shut his door. I see the Wilman flood row between. I see the darkness and the death everlasting upon the generation. When the separation takes place, he sees this darkness and the flood separating you know, the goats from the sheep. So he's giving us this vision of the judgment. Brethren, ye brethren, what I see, what I see, O sinner, I see the resurrection and the light, see the meek Jesus saying, they killed me, that ye shall live again. And notice it's two, they killed me, that you, I died that them what sees and believes shall never die. Brethren, O brethren, I see the doom crack and the golden horn shouting down to glory and the arisen dead what got the blood and the recollection of the Lamb. In the midst of the voices and the hands, Benji sat, wrapped in his sweet blue gaze. Dilsey sat bolt upright, besides crying rigidly and quietly in the annealment and the blood of the remembered land. They go out of church, and Fronie is saying down below, Why don't you quit that? She, Dilsey can't stop crying. She's so moved by the experience. Frozen Fro- is embarrassed. It's the same, you know. It's, it, to me, it's that same aspect that we saw in Luster when he says, they're going to see quality. You know, I'm going to show them, because he identifies with this white world, that there's this tendency in the black to want to be in this world because they're slaves. And while we're witnessing this world fall apart. Mm-hmm. Why don't you quit that mommy? Franny said, with all these people looking. We're passing white folks soon. I've seen the first and last, as he said, never you mind. And I think that's the second time she says it, and she'll say it again when she gets home. And remember, there's this strange um, scene when they're walking to church when the black children want to come near Benji to dare each other, but they're afraid because they know if they touch him, they might get cursed or there are these superstitions. Um, On page 299, they come home, in the middle of the page, Um, Dilsey, with some kind of prescience, she just has this foresight, um, he ain't coming back yet, Dizzy said. What do you want? She will say later he's not coming back. Um, she, she knows that he, she won't see him right away. Mrs. Compson said nothing like so many cold, weak people when faced at last by the incontrovertible disaster. She exhumed from somewhere a sort of fortitude, strength. In her case, it was an unshakable conviction regarding the yet unplumbed event. Well, she said presently, did you find it? She has only enough energy, but she manages to muster up this energy out of somewhere to say, did you find it, the note. She's convinced that her daughter um, committed suicide. What you talk about, Dizzy said, don't you know she all right? I bet she'd be walking right in this door before dark, fiddlesticks, Mrs. Thompson said. It's in the blood, like uncle, like niece, it's just, where did Jason, I mean is there any question about where Jason got all this? Once a bitch, always a bitch. It's in the blood. It will never be anything other than this. They're, they're fixed. It's in the blood. Like uncle, like niece. He says that. Like, he says that about Quentin all the time. Like daughter, like mother, like mother. Like uncle, like niece, or mother, I don't know which would be worse. I don't seem to care. Um, What you keep on talking that way for, Deuce, he said. What you want to do, anything like that for, I don't know, what reason did Quentin have under, this is stunning, under God's heaven, what reason did he have? He can't be, it can't be simply to flout and hurt me. Whoever God is, he would not permit that. I'm a lady. You might not believe that from any of my offspring, but I am. Indirectly, there's a blaming of God. She reminds me of Francisca in Dante's Hell. For those of you, who have, if you, if you remember Francisca, it, it's the first level that Dante goes in. It's love gone bad. And she said, if God were a friend of mine, he wouldn't do this. She's indirectly blaming God for, for being there. There's a lot of that in Quentin. I mean, uh, Mrs. Thompson. Okay, we know what happens. Um, um, Jason's off. Um, in Mottstown and comes back and he's in the square and then um, um, he has to straighten out the wagon in order to go around it right and then we read that last message. Just a couple of quick questions and, or comments, and then I want to put the question to you guys. Um, the, the major themes of the pastor's homily was um, I got the recollection and the blood. It's in remembrance of me, and the blood of Christ died, that it's the Protestant the great Protestant abstractions. Um, the remembrance and the glory, the blood, the atonement, and the inspiration of the preacher has inspired everybody so they've taken it in and feel it. there's that description in which, Um, they they are one in that word, so they actually become together as one. But the great things of his of his um, sermon are um, the flight from Egypt, um, the the fact that Christ is not going to overload heaven, that line, so the sinners won't find a place there. So, um, and the death of Christ, the atonement that took place for everybody and the suffering that Mary went through. Those are the major things. I, I think we're meant to keep in mind a couple of things. Dilsey will say immediately afterwards in that passage that I just read, I've seen the first and the last. She saw, she lived through Damity's death, the grandmother dying, and I don't know if she was there before, but she saw the children come into being, and she saw them all die, and we know that there's no heir. The Compson line comes to an end. So she has watched this family die out, and there's those lines in that sermon that talks about the people in Egypt who gave in, who, who gave into that Egyptian way of life. So in one sense, I think we're meant to see, this is the same thing we saw in Dante, it's what we saw in Melville. America is Egypt. Are they coming out of it, or are they there? what we see happen to the people who are there is they go to hell. And that's just as bleak as it gets here. Heaven's not going to be overloaded. So we're, we've been experiencing the, the falling apart of a family. Um, and in the sermon, we're, we're taken into that, we're taken back to that Egyptian world where the Hebrew people, the chosen people, didn't come out. They died there. And we know that lots, um, Moses God got furious at so many of the Israelites in the, in the desert. Lots of them never went through. One of the readings of the desert experiences is that a whole generation... They were in the desert 40 years. Why 40 years? Because a whole generation had to die out because it had become so spoiled rotten in Egypt. What is, what is happening to the southern landed aristocratic respectable class? Absolutely spoiled. I mean, it's it's just so sad to watch. You know that description that I read where she's what happens to a helpless person. She she can't do anything. She expects Dilsey to do everything for her. Um, so the the homily the sermon touches on some of the most important themes that we've been ex- experiencing in the decline of this family. Um, now, <laughs> so. What are we... I've, I've asked everybody to think about the differences in the modes of the four sections. In each of the first three sections, we're in the consciousness of the person, Benji, Quentin, Jason. In this one, it's um, third person detached. Why did Faulkner do that? Why did he do that? And in the Dilsey section, it's the only section in which anything religious comes to the foreground. And it's absolutely the foreground. Dilzy is so moved she can't stop crying. She brings that home. And she laments, she grieves. I've seen the first and the last. So why that third person? And then um, why this Easter weekend, why this Easter weekend? And I'm going to put it as starkly as I can, um, because the purpose of all of our work together is to see if we can find Christ Orordinarily. We don't. Is Christ present in this book? You remember we talked about this in the very opening section. First thing Caddy says to him when he's a child, he's three years old. He says, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? When he goes out to the girls, remember, hoping to see Caddy. He says, I just want to say, I just want to say. He wasn't attacking them. He gets castrated. He gets castrated. God. It's how badly badly we misread each other. He gets castrated. He's trying to find the words, um, and he can't. Um, So right in the opening, is introducing this struggling to find the words, this longing that doesn't get answered, and when it's not answered, it gets perverted. Quentin's suicide, father drinking himself to death, Caddy running off, Quentin running off, Maury's affair, Um, I mean we've seen every possible self-violence that we can experience. Is Christ here? And let me put this as starkly as I can. Christ went to a cross to die for everybody. Um, These people were raised this way. They didn't even know any better. Um, If this is Egypt, how are we to look at it? Faulkner does not judge. One of the questions I've got is: This fourth chapter an indictment of the earlier three? He doesn't judge, but is the way he's presented it imply a judgment of you know, how? How are we to look at this fourth chapter? And is Christ here? And, and what do we make of these three days? Benji is um, Saturday night. We can say that that's the suffering of the innocent. He suffers, he's like a Christ figure. He doesn't know any better, he doesn't commit these sins. Everything he does is involuntary, He's, he's an idiot. Jason is on Good Friday. He's a mean, mean, cruel man. Good Friday is the night when Christ went to the cross. So, Jump in there anywhere. I mean, those are those are some of the major questions that I've got about. How do we put this book together? Is Christ present? Why did He set it on Easter weekend the way He did it and arrange it the way He did? It? I love the way see. You know, she's um, referred to several.
1: Being on the earth, you know, the, the very earthy and, and humility—the the virtue of humility—is—is is what hummus, yes, the earth, yeah, yeah, hummus, and um, so that helps her, um, treat Benji, the vulnerable, most vulnerable person here, to treat him as a child of God. And she said, "You are a child of God, mm-hmm. just like me." Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's an equation in terms of dignity. She her dignity is the same as
0: Benji's. He just simply doesn't have the you know. Yeah. You all know you remember from the Old Testament, Joseph is the brother that's the the He's the youngest brother, right?
2: Benjamin the youngest.
0: Benjamin. So yeah. Joseph is the oldest. Benjamin is the last wait, have I got that backwards?
3: Benjamin's, Joseph the youngest. The youngest Joseph. Benjamin's the
0: youngest Joseph and Joseph is the one sold into slavery and he uses Benjamin if you remember he, he when he meets with his brothers and they don't know who he is and he tricks them and sends them back and they come back again and sends them off again with more wealth than they brought to him but he planted the silver cup in um, Benjamin. Benjamin's bag and asked the men to go search them, trusting that they got, and they bring them back and he, he, um, I think he sequesters himself, if I remember, I can't, I don't have the story, but I think he separates himself from the brothers and is going to take Benjamin and then reveals himself, and the two weep. Um, and Benjamin, I think, means the right hand of God, or it also means, son, it means son of the right hand and son of the south, interesting. <laughs> um, that, that they gave they didn't name him Joseph, they named him Benjamin. Um, Who's name? Hmm? Who's the family. His
1: dad.
0: Anyway, what do you, what any... Is Christ present here? What did, um, what, what's the function of this? Does this fourth chapter close the book? Does it throw a different light on it? Is, what do we do? Um, is Christ present? Is 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 this family going to hell? He's not going to overload heaven, and there's the dark passages of the waters, and the, you know, separating the, the the goat and the sheep at the end.
2: Well, one thing that I found interesting was Faulkner was actually asked asked once why the sequence in his story, and he said it's the only way it would work. And if you look at it from Benji from on the mind of a, an idiot. I, I tend to think he's probably, in, a, in today's mind, more autistic than just an idiot. But that's where you kind of get the first introduction to the characters. And if any and the whole history. Yeah, and, and if any of the other characters had done that, there would be prejudice. You would either have, you know, Quentin's view that everything is wrong, or. Jason's view that everybody's out to get me or, or yeah and, and even Caddy's view because she's she's very dispirited with the absence of her mother through her life, and she's actually through what she does kind of rebelling against that whole thing. So if, if any other character had done it other than Benji, we would not have gotten that lead-in to the perspective of, of the fall of the family, I think. And then you look at you know why Quentin and then Jason well I think Quentin is you after the Benji section where you kind of get a feel for each one of the characters then what you see in Quentin is what's lost is that that old Southern chivalry respect honesty that he's he's looking for and the fact that he can't find it anywhere he ultimately just gives up. Mm-hmm. And then you get to Jason as well. Okay, if you if you can't find what you've lost, then what are your choices? Well, then Quentin's choice was well, I give up. Or Jason's choice is you're cynical about everything. And so then the last story and and, and so we see each one of those in in the person's head. In the last story, it if, if it's going to be the resurrection, it's going to be hope. That almost has to be told to a third person, a, a truly objective <laughs> viewpoint. Otherwise, I don't think we really pick that up yeah. as such. Anyway, that's sort of. How yeah,
0: it's, on. it's really interesting to me because I've had the exact same thought that um, it was really important to lay out the whole history. Um, and. And in a way that none of the character, none of the other characters could have done, because they're so slanted, they're they're so prejudiced in the way they see. And Benji's Benji's helpless. What we get has sort of an objectivity. But the other curious thing for me, there was something I I came across it today, and 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 now and I've forgotten. It. Something happens in the last chapter. Maybe somebody can help me here. Something's out of place, and I don't mean going around the statue. Something was out of place, and one of the things that you can say about the the um, Compton family, it may have been sleeping on Sunday, I can't remember, but I go through those things and think, everything's out of order and yet they're fixed in a rigid order, but it's not a healthy order, and in some ways the, the shuffling of those sequences is, is an expression. Everything's out of order. Um, I mean, we're, we're stepping into a world that has gone mad. It's like the Beth's world, it's falling apart. There is no order, there is no sequence. I don't know that that was on Faulkner's mind. Um, I really believe that that he couldn't have begun without the Benji episode because we get the whole family history in a a healthy way. But there's something to be said for the fact that nothing is in order in this world. Everything's out of order, it's wrong. Um, That the kid should be sleeping in and the mother, mother is apologizing, saying, I know you blame me, you know, for... That, that nobody sees things right. It's kind of like
2: Plato's cave, though, in some ways. Sorry? Sort of like Plato's oh, cave. Oh, absolutely. That's well right. Nobody's
0: able to escape all the, the images, no. except for Dilsey. Dilsey at the end. You, weren't, you guys weren't here, but I, I used Plato's cave, I mean, image, as a way of looking at the three people because we finished the work on the three of them last week. Um, Jason lives entirely in his head, Quentin is a spirited. The, the noble, the love of nobility, the chivalric ideal, and Benji lives in his appetites, and every one of those men is defined by their relation to a woman, to Caddy. They're obsessed with her, their whole lives are defined by that woman. And, and the question that I raised last week was, take away, I already asked it, but take away the traditional values. What does a man and a woman do today? I mean, this, they're fixed in their relationships, but everything that was important is lost. What do you do then? You're back in Egypt. I mean, the whole, the, the, the. the I it seems to me that that <laughs> I read the Dilsey episode. I mean, it's so hard for to me. It's a, it's a sign of light, a sign of hope. It's a serious question in my mind whether that doesn't represent a condemnation of the three episodes before, because there's Christ is absent from any of them. And for Dilsey, he's absolutely central to her life. And the, the preacher's words about the, the poor and the rich, you know, that there was a rich man and a poor man and all's woe. We've, we've watched the Compson family go from wealth to absolute poverty. Jason has lost all of his money. He's going to have to go back. The family's destroyed. So everything that happened is exemplifying the, the preacher's Sermon. Um, so is the fourth section a condemnation, an indictment? Faulkner doesn't judge; he's not saying anything. But, but the, they're there. There they are, and the preacher's words are, "Well, not going to overload heaven. <laughs> I love that. Um, well, there's a bit of irony there. Oh, right. Go ahead. The
2: fact that that you, you see the decline of the family and with Miss Quentin leaving. And with Jason's predicament, you, you, you basically get the clear picture that this family's dead. Dead, gone, yes. And and,
0: and with no, and no
2: hope, ironically, at least for me anyway, rests in a black slave. Yeah, yeah. And a woman Jason
0: yeah, hated a woman, Jason, hated, woman. Jason no. hated to acknowledge an independence on a woman. And remember while we're here quick, go back to Godown Moses in that debate between Kaz and uh, Ike, remember? and he said, the only hope lay with the blacks because they endured. And by the way, the the central statement of Faulkner's acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize was enduring. The, 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 The thing that was most important in his work is that, and remember in Paul's letters, endurance is essential because through it we we have hope. And it's the blacks here who are enduring, the whites are falling apart. Is Christ, we don't have any time, sorry, is Christ present here? Can we, where? Because the
1: message is given to us that the way to heaven is through being a humble person like this black Delsie. She's the only one that is the, the true Christian there. Who? Delsie. So, Delsie, yeah. So Entire that's land. showing us all these other people with their high living and everything, that's not the way, it's the way to to, to um, salvation is so. being a humble, kind person. And that's why Faulkner took the black person as the one...
0: Square this with Christ having gone to the cross for everybody.
1: He went for he sinners. And, and they're
0: all sinners. sinners. So are they saved or not? <laughs> what I'm asking.
1: There might, we, we can't judge. We do not know. God only knows
3: that. There is a judge's, judges act. It depends, it depends on what
2: it depends on. On. Wait, sorry, say, say
0: yes. um, it say, say again.
1: Oh, I said but there is a redemptive act going on. So, uh, Even though it's not through the family line. You mean
0: with Dizzy, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And it's almost like um, the God adopting the non-Jews as his own Um, well she's Christian seems kind of an adoptive uh, (coughs) redemption act going on Um,
0: she's Christian so she would be one of the adopted is that what you're saying?
1: oh I just meant in the way she was treating Benji or the way she was treating um, the hopeless
3: so much of this is the first three chapters to me made very little sense period and the fourth chapter kind of made sense (laughs) so to me you find Christ is the thing that makes sense well this other crap doesn't make any sense at all. And that's <laughs> <laughs> except,
0: except I would say, I, I, and you know me, I mean, I, this is, otherwise I wouldn't be here. Can we ever, I'm asking this really seriously, how well can we ever repent as sinners? I mean, remember, I, I, did, I mentioned this last week, the, the story of the men and the, the two men in the temple. The one I think was a Pharisee who was very self-righteous, and the other one said, "I was a sinner," and Christ was making clear He came for the sinners. Um, how how good at we are we um, at changing ourselves if we don't see our sins very well? So for me, it's not crap at all. I mean, wait, hold on, hold on. For me, it's not crap at all. I take this stuff very seriously, and I was really serious in my opening remarks. It, I mean that's one of the one of the functions of the prophet. If we don't learn to see ourselves really in-depth, really look at the things that are obscure and clouded and darkened and shaded from us, what are our chances of, of really beginning to change ourselves the way he says? We so for me, this isn't crap at all, I mean I, I was really serious, one of the great gifts to me and why this is a grace for me is because he's showing those aspects that I think all of us maybe I'm claiming too much here, but, that all of us have within us, the, 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 and I've said this, I've prayed for courage, that we have the courage to look at this and not be afraid and be gifted because I know that if we don't, from my own experiences and from people I know really closely, if, 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 if you're met with arguments all the time or you greet people with arguments and you close off, what chance is there for any of us to get better? To grow? We're called to holiness. And, and I'm taking that, I mean, Faulkner drinking? If we're called to holiness and the cost of is it is facing depths of sin like this, how many of us have the courage to go there? And yet that's what we're asked to do because it's the, it's the Pharisee in the temple, remember, who brushes it off. And it seems to me one of the, one of the reasons I, I feel a little bit less uncomfortable condemning the competence is they have no sense that there's anything wrong with them. They're, they're, they're back in Egypt. That's what Egypt is. The people who came out of it, they, a whole generation had to pass away in order to learn how to take seriously what they were being called to do. Well, so,
1: Benji has a sense
0: of it. Sorry? I
1: think Benji has a sense of
0: it. Why? I mean, he's so... Go ahead. Well, if
1: you look at pages... It read, in, seven, read, read it, Karen. Read it. Just read it. Uh, in the midst of the voices and the hands, Ben sat wrapped in his sweet blue gaze. Dilsey sat bolt upright beside, crying rigidly and quietly in the bed of the blood of the remembered lamb. Yeah. And then on the next page, uh, they reached the gate and entered. Immediately, Ben began to whimper again. And for a while, all of them looked up the drive, the square, paintless house with its rotting cortico.
0: Yeah for me it's I, I don't have any sense that Benji is conscious of sin the way that I'm talking about here That one of the values of reading stuff like that is this. No it, I didn't mean he was conscious
1: of sin he was conscious of the
0: decay of the family. Yes, yes. God's offering. But, uh, here, and I, I mean I'm glad you the, the the one of the points I tried to make last week when we were reading Eliot and why it's important to go back to the garden. If we don't I think the psychologist Jung and others and the great poets, so many of them consciously are a lot of modern poets have, have acknowledged the role of the garden in literature from the beginning. If we don't have a sense of a garden within us unconsciously, Jung's collective how do we know that anything's wrong? I mean lots of people would say it's only because that that state buried and lost within us is there that we have some sense that something's wrong Benji's a perfect example because when something's wrong, and nobody can quite see what's going on with him, or few people quite see because it varies. But it's when somebody cried, when, when Caddy came home after losing her virginity, when she put on lipstick, over and over again, he was so sensitive, that something wasn't quite right. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? And why would he take pleasure? Why would he be wrapped when somebody's moving us closer to that point. So that garden state hangs in us. Um, it, it makes us aware that something's not quite right at some instinctive level. And it also makes us long for to return, to recover what we've lost. And what we see in the constant family is that, is that it's as if they turn their whole direction towards the world. Prestige, family name, wealth, Class standing, and lost, lost it all. Let's stop. Um, next week, oh God, this is going to be. I, I don't even know how to describe this. From the heights I of the, ca, from the heights of the cathedral of Chartres in France to a hut, in America. I mean, E.B. White once more to the lake, and and Eudora Welty and Petrified Man and. Uh, and why I live at the post office. We'll do those three stories next week. I'm glad, we, I'm glad, I'm really glad we had a chance to do this work. I know it was a hard, hard, difficult work, but I, myself, am grateful. Well, cool. can I ask you, <laughs> Dr. Alexander, if you... Um... <laughs> I've heard that since my classroom. <laughs> Can we can we put this on some other level? I don't know what to do here.
1: <laughs> yes. What, is your question?
0: what go ahead. Come on.